I do feel a little devious for making Pastor Nathan read that text tonight. <laughs> but I'm not going to lie, I got a little bit of joy out of watching him stumble through some of those pronunciations. But <laughs> that, that's my sin nature, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but no, it's good to see you tonight. I'm glad that you are here. If you're joining us online too, thank you for that. Uh, we are in Joshua chapter 13. I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit between Joshua chapter 11 through 13 and some other places too. Uh, but I wanted to bring you to this portion of scripture because for whatever reason, I think there are certain parts of the Bible that we tend to stay away from at times. Uh, we like to think that we have all of our Bibles sort of known or memorized, or at least we're familiar with a lot of them. But uh, truth be told, you don't have to confess this with your hand raised, but there are certain parts of the Bible that we just aren't familiar with because we don't like to read them because they strike us as a little bit boring. Uh, it's okay to admit that. Uh, it's okay to admit that. Um, maybe you're familiar with this. You, you've started out January 1st with your Bible reading and you zoom through Genesis and Exodus because those are really interesting por- portions of the Bible. All the stories, all the people, the movement of the people, uh, some of the battle scenes, some of the just the politics going on, some of the, the drama, the family drama that's just filled, that fills up the pages of Genesis, and then you turn the page to Leviticus chapter 1, and most Bible reading endeavors end up stopping right at Leviticus, so right around March or April, <laughs> uh, because Leviticus doesn't strike us as something that's super enticing, super exciting to read. Uh, you're reading about all these rigid requirements that God placed on his people in terms of how they could worship, and you're wading through all this sort of uh, really fine details Uh, I personally would love to gather sort of the data on how many people actually just leave or just skip Leviticus in their Bible reading just because they can't get through it. Um, I'm sure it's it's quite an interesting figure. But I say all that to say this because I think Joshua, uh, a lot of times we you probably get through Joshua chapter about 10. Um, and we've preached through Joshua 10 before, and those are really exciting. There's some fascinating stories, and then we get to Joshua 11, and then basically from Joshua 11 through chapter 22 uh, is a portion of the Bible that I would say is easily skippable. <laughs> um, it actually is, I think, some of the most tough reading, as Pastor Nathan evidence. Uh, it's really tough reading if you try and read uh, chapter 11 through chapter 21, actually. Uh, Joshua 11 and 12, they relay to us, if you, go, you, you don't have to read it, but you can just look at it and familiar, familiarize yourself with it. They relay to us some of the victories that Joshua and the Israelites are able to achieve in, uh, in the countries uh, surrounding the promised land where they are entering. And uh, we're told uh, how they are going to occupy this land as God, as Jehovah, covenanted with them. And then from chapter 13, the portion that Pastor Nathan read, all the way through chapter 21, we are given precise detail, very precise detail, in terms of how all this land is going to be portioned out to each of the individual tribes. So you're reading and you'll find that this tribe gets this land in this region and so on and so forth um, as an inheritance. Um, and truthfully, uh, to be quite honest with you, uh, it is hard at face value to know what this application is for us. We aren't out conquering other cities. We aren't out trying to uh, take territory from other nations. So it's hard to look at this and be like, what in the world am I to glean uh, from these pages of the Bible? 
We know from Scripture, uh, I know from Scripture, that I'm charged to preach the whole counsel of God. Uh, I'm going to endeavor to do that tonight in a, in a way to take, I think, two lessons, uh, two really, I think, significant lessons um, from these chapters of Scripture that I think really actually give us profound encouragement uh, even where we are right now, even today. Uh, that's what I want to do tonight. So the first lesson comes from actually chapter 11. Go to Joshua 11 in the first seven verses. The first lesson is this, the pattern of God's deliverance in the past. The pattern of God's deliverance in the past. Look at Joshua 11 and look at verse 1. It says, And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, had heard these things, that he sent to Johab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings that were on the north of the mountains and of the plains south of uh, Chinaroth, and the valley and in the borders of Doron in the west. So, uh, really quickly. You have another king that has heard the news, and what news has he heard? Well, you go back to chapter 10, and that's where we get the wonderful story of Joshua and Israelites achieving victory over the Amorite axis of powers. Uh, you might be familiar with this story because of the incredible story of the miracle of Joshua telling God to, or asking God to have the sun stand still. Remember that, that comes in verses 12 and 13. And then going on, it proceeds after that moment, Joshua and Israel proceed to achieve an incredible victory over all of these enemies in these surrounding territories. So that's the news that this guy Jabin here hears about. He hears about this sweeping victory that Israel uh, triumphs over their enemies with. And so here he sets out to prepare his own kingdom for war. Listen again. He's, he is gathering. He heard these things. So he sent to Johab. And he sent to this guy Shimron. And then keep going in verse 3. And to the Canaanite on the east and on the west. And to the Amorite and the Hittite. And the Perizzite and the Jebusite and the mountains. And to the Hivite under Hermon and the land of Mizpah. And they went out. They and all their hosts with them. Much people. Even as the sand that is upon the seashore in the multitude. With horses and chariots very many. And when all these kings were met together, they came and pitched together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. I find it really fascinating that this is the, this is the proposed plan that Jabin has. This is the, the thing that Jabin wants. He hears of this news of Israel achieving victory over all these other territories and kingdoms and cities and nations. And what is his first conclusion? Is to do exactly what the king of chapter 10 did. <laughs> Go to chapter 10 and look at verse 1. Joshua 10, 1 says this. Now it came to pass when King Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made a peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city. As one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. So he hears this news, this guy, King Adoni Zedek, he hears this news that Joshua and Israel is going about conquering major cities. And then even more so than that, there's a major city called Gibeon that has just pledged allegiance with Israel. And now here, look at verse 5. Adoni Zedek gets together five kings. Look at verse 5. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish and the king of Eglon gathered themselves together and went up. They and all their hosts and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. You can see the same exact plan. 
The same exact idea. My idea, my bright idea to get back against Israel is to do the same thing that happened to Adani Zedek. And look at what happens to him. Look, go down to verse 22. This is after this incredible miracle, uh, after uh, not only the sun standing still, but God raining down hailfire and brimstone on the enemies. And look at verse 22. Then said Joshua, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. So at this point, these five kings have huddled themselves in this place out of fear for their very lives. So he calls them out and they did so and brought them forth, those five kings unto him out of the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came to pass when they brought those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war, which went with them, come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded. And they took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid. And laid great stones in the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. That's the lesson of these five Amorite kings. (laughs) You mess with God's people, and this is the end that you are going to receive. And this, you can clearly see it in chapter 11. This is Jabin's bright idea. Let's get together some of my surrounding guys that can help me out. And he forms yet another axis of powers to fight against Israel. Notice that's his motivation in verse 5, to fight against them. And just, just like chapter 10. Just like previously, when this mass of an army has come up against, in that case, Gibeon, one of Israel's allies. Here, when it has come up against Israel itself, that's when God speaks. Notice verse 6. And the Lord said unto Joshua, be not afraid. I don't know about you, but I would have a hard time believing that in that moment in that particular moment cuz notice how big this army is go back to verse 4 it says all of their host is even as the sand that is upon the seashore of course he's being hyperbolic but the sense is this is a massive force that is coming up against Israel and what does God say be not afraid because of them for tomorrow about this time will i deliver them up all slain before Israel and thou shalt how their horses And burn their chariots with fire. So here. God steps in and delivers this incredible message to Joshua and Israel. And all these people that are here set to face off against this incredible axis of powers against them. This army. That was as vast as the sand on the seashore. As God says here would be reduced to nothing. They will all be slain. Why? Because God was going to fight for them. Once again, Joshua and Israel, I love this. They are given the guarantee of victory before they even lift a finger to try and defend themselves. You notice that? It says, be not afraid because of them. I will deliver them up. I will do it. God is telling them, I am going to fight for you. Don't worry, Joshua. Don't worry, Israel. I have this. I got this. I'm going to deliver them into your hands. It's as if they had already won. It is as if they had already achieved victory. 
Before they had even engaged in battle or unsheathed one sword or notched, notched one arrow on their bows. They had already won. Because God here has given the promise of victory and of deliverance to them. Again, this is the same promise that Joshua receives in chapter 10. Go there just really quickly so you can see the harmony. Look at chapter 10 verse 8. And the Lord said unto Joshua, fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. Already, before you even fought, there shall not a man of them stand before thee. Another translation says, you will fight them as if they were one man. (laughs) That's how swiftly and completely and totally you are going to overcome them. And essentially the same promise is given to Joshua again. There's enemies at the gate. Yes, much to be afraid of, but I'm telling you, be not afraid. Why? Because it's as if you've already won. Because I am your God. I am your God. And so it is. Joshua and his men, they come up against Jabin and his host. With a sudden and a swift surprise attack. Look at verse 7. So Joshua came, and all the people of war with him against them by the waters of Merom suddenly. And they fell upon them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel who smote them and chased them unto the, unto the, excuse me, unto great Zidon and unto Mizri-Fafmaim. Ooh. And unto the valley of Mizpah eastward. And they smote them until they left them none remaining. And Joshua did unto them as the Lord bade him. He howled their horses and burnt their chariots. That is really this. They are cutting the Achilles of the horses, crippling them, and also burning the chariots. God wants them, again, much like, I feel like this is a moment much like what happens with Gideon. Remember in Gideon where he is told to throw away all their swords and their spears so they have no weapons to trust in and they go into battle with lanterns and trumpets? Here is the same thing, essentially. God is trying to get rid of anything that they could possibly trust in. Instead of taking them over and using their chariots against them, he wants them to get burned. No weapons of war can you steal or utilize for yourself. I want you to burn them all. Get rid of all their horses. Get rid of all their chariots. The victory is solely with God. And again, the victory is total. It's complete. It's absolute. Look at verse 10. And Joshua at that time turned back and took Hazor and smote the king thereof with the sword. For Hazor before time was the head of all those kingdoms. And they smote all the souls that were therein with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was not any left to breathe. And he burnt Hazor with fire. Their victory is total. It's complete. There's no one left alive. God has given them an incredible victory. And the victories keep coming. And they keep coming. If you go to verses 16 through 18, that's what they relate to us. It says, look at verse 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hills, and all the south countries, and all the land of Goshen, and in the valley, and the plain, and the mountain of Israel, and the valley of the same, even from the Mount Halak. And it keeps going. All of this they took. All of this they overcame and occupied. Really, that's what's going on here. As, as the, the, the people of God are entering into the promised land. Chapter 10 tells us of all the conquests of all of the southern, southern cities. Chapter 11 tells us the conquest of all of the, the northern cities. And chapter 12 will relate to us in very brief bullet points, essentially, the conquest of all the eastern and western cities. You can see what God is doing. He's protecting his people. 
Because every time, every time, God is the one who is fighting for his people. This is God's comprehensive deliverance of his chosen people, Israel. Nothing was left undone. God was going to do it all. God was going to care for it all. And notice chapter 11, verse 23. It says, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said unto Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. And the land rested from war. I love how it says there, just as God had promised to Moses. All of those promises, they're being fulfilled in this man, Joshua, here. They're being carried out by this captain. This captain of the host who is empowered by God. This catalog of victories, it's tough to read through. But if you look at it from another sense, it would make anyone want to boast. Look at all my victories. Look at my incredible resume. Joshua has an incredible resume as a military strategist. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. But sometimes, most of the time, as we see here, it's total and complete victory. But I don't really think that that's the point. The point of Joshua 11 through 13 isn't to astonish us or amaze us by by Joshua's acumen or military prowess or his ability to intelligently think of how to defeat all of these enemies. Actually, I think we're given these records of all these conquests. Yes, that are belabored. Yes, it seems uh, so uh, laborious if you're trying to read through them. It seems so just repetitive. I think we're given them for that very reason. That God is always faithful. Every single one of these incredible victories that Israel has over one of these cities. It's God that is delivering his people. God fighting for his people. God interceding on their behalf. God showing them just how strong he is, just how mighty he is, just how powerful he is to overcome any amount of odds. doesn't matter if they have a vast enough army, that they're greater than all of the seashore. It doesn't matter if time is running out in the day and we need to get victory over these enemies. We can call upon God and the sun will stand still. That's the type of God that Israel had. That type of of faithful God. Every single one of these defeats that Israel is able to see on behalf of one of their enemies. It's an example of God's faithfulness. That's what you're reading here. Over and over and over again. God fighting for his people. This is the same faithful God that Israel has always had. And guess what? It's the same faithful God that watches over you and me. This same faithful God delivering his people, watching over them through all of these scurries and strifes, all of these incredible uh, conflicts. It's the same God who is watching over us in the 21st century, 2020. His faithfulness hasn't abated. It hasn't let up an inch. Just as he was watching over his people in every single one of these outcomes. 
He's watching over your outcomes too. Which leads me to another point. The second lesson of this text comes in chapter 13 from the text that we read earlier. We had the pattern of God's deliverance in the past. And here we have the promise of God's deliverance in the future. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 13. It says, Now Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years, and there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. There's, to me, there's a really fascinating juxtaposition, a, a really incredible contrast that just jumps off the page as you turn the page from chapter 12 to 13. Because you're reading all of these conquests, you're reading all of these victories that Joshua and Israel is able to achieve. And what does God tell Joshua? Notice, again. There remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. You would think that after all of these victories upon victories upon victories that Joshua was able to achieve, that there must have been some sort of dent in God's plan that he had made. Certainly, he had done something to accomplish something in God's plan. And what does God tell him? There's still a lot to do. There's still a lot left that hasn't been done yet. These are, I think, unexpected words. (laughs) Imagine being Joshua. Yes, he is now, as as it says there in the text, he's stricken in years. He's very old. He's reached the twilight of his life, so to speak. And you're told that after all of the accomplishments that you've been able to achieve, there's still a lot left to do. I don't know about you, that might make me not in the best of moods. If I'm Joshua, I'm thinking that after all that I have done, surely that there must have been something that I've accomplished. And God yet doesn't focus on that. What does he focus on? There's still a lot left, Joshua. There's still work left. Joshua is likely 100 years old at this time. He died at the age of 110. He's likely 100 here, and after a lifetime of conquering nations, after a lifetime of warring against his people's enemies, God says, there's still more. Still more war. Still more possession. Still more conflict that needs to be overcome. I don't know about you, I might have a hard time with that. I might have a hard time with God telling me, Not recognizing, perhaps, all that I had accomplished, all that I had done, all the victories that I had achieved. For all the times that Joshua prevailed, there was still more progress that needed to be achieved. This is surely disheartening. I can relate in a very small way. (laughs) And I tell you it's small because it's not in any way having to do with conquering a nation. (laughs) It has to do with digging a hole for a mailbox. (laughs) So we were putting in a mailbox at our new house. And we were putting in the ground. And I don't have a post hole digger. I should have asked for one. But I was digging it with just a shovel. And, you know, it says dig 18 to 24 inches into the ground to put it in. We we haven't put in cement yet. We're going to do that. So it's just in the ground at this point. But regardless, I'm there and I'm digging and I'm digging and I'm digging. And I'm like, surely this is at least 16 inches. And I go down and measure it. It's about six. <laughs> um, and I keep going. I keep going. It took me a lot longer than I expected. Um, 
And I feel like that's in a very, a very modicum of a way. That's sort of what Joshua felt like. Surely he felt that he had made some sort of progress in what God had called him to do. And what God had covenanted with Moses. Yet God says there's more to be done. There's more to be done. And I think the point of all this is one that I have found most freeing. One that I have found uh, perhaps one of the most liberating promises of all. Which is this. I think... What God wants to show Joshua is that his plans, his purposes, his mission with his people is not tied to any one person. Just like the promise was given to Moses and it was fulfilled through Joshua. The promise that's given to Joshua is going to be filled by another person. I think of two. I think of David. The promise of the temple is given to David and who fulfills it is his son, Solomon. He sees it in his glory. David does not. So here, Joshua is given this assurance that all of God's plans are going to come about. Yes, even yes, after he is gone. Because notice, so here again, the the verses that Nathan read, I'm not going to read them. Um, You know them. Because I don't want to try and pronounce that word. But anyways, you read all of these territories that have to be possessed. And notice, they, these are the lands that have not yet been taken over. And what is God telling them to do? Look at verse, uh, look at verse 7. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance unto the nine tribes and the half of the tribe of Manasseh. Notice, again, they haven't possessed them. And he's already telling them to divide them. As if they are already theirs. As if they have already possessed them already. As if they have already won and taken them over. It's as if God has already given them this land in which he, yes, in fact, has already done. It's sort of like that phrase, you know, that old phrase, don't count your chickens before they hatch. And yet, in this case, God is telling his people to count your chickens and, yes, even divide them. Prepare yourself for this land. And, yes, you haven't possessed it yet, but you're going to. Why? Look at verse 6. Notice again, he says, Them will I drive out from before the children of Israel. Only divide thou it by lot to the Israelites for an inheritance as I have commanded thee. I'm going to do it. It's as if it's already done. You are secure in this. This is the promise he's giving to Joshua. I'm going to do it. You may not be around, Joshua, but I am going to see this through. You can already make the plans of how to divide this territory. Again, just as he had before, he assures them of victory. Guaranteed victory before they even lifted a finger or took one step. And notice, again, it's not because of Joshua. As mighty as he was, as intelligent and as incredible of a man as he was, it's not because of him. It's because of God. It's because of this God Israel had. By this God, all of these future conquests that Israel was about to see were secured in this God's words for them. In this God's faithfulness for them. Not Joshua's fortitude. Not his bravery. He, Joshua, was not the center of Israel's victory. God was. 
He was the victor. He, Joshua might have been the captain, but God was the true victor. Therefore, when Joshua passes away at the end of this book, the hope of Israel is secure. Why? Because it's not in a man. It's not in an incredible captain. It's not in a general. It's not in a figure. It's not in a person that is around them. It's in someone else. It's in a God who is faithful. I see this and I think of myself in certain ways. Not selfishly, but I think of just the fact that just like Joshua can never have this moment where he can say, ah, mission accomplished. You and I will never have that same moment. Just like Joshua will get to the end of his life and just got to the end of his life and was told there's still yet to be done, so will you and I. There's more people that need to be uh, told the good news. There's more people that need loving. We haven't fulfilled the mission of God. The great commission hasn't been completed yet. You think about that? The great commission that God gives to us as his people is always left undone. It's an unfulfilled task by every single Christian who aims to take it up. And that doesn't mean to, uh, to demoralize our work. It's meant to encourage us. Why? Because the work goes on despite us. It goes on because of God. It goes on because he is the one who is carrying it on and seeing it through. And this is the encouragement that Joshua is giving. Generations after he's gone, the faithful God is still going to be the faithful God. And generations after we are gone, God's work will still continue. He will see his work through. I think sometimes we can get, I, I, I confess to thinking this way sometimes, that we can get a little conceited thinking that God's kingdom stops on us. That if we aren't faithful, everything is going to pot. And there's a sense in which I think that urgency is good. But there's also a sense in which that makes us the center of it all. God's work goes on after we are gone. It goes on because he is faithful. He's the one who is securing its success, not us. He is the one who is ensuring that all of the gears of this kingdom that he is working towards bringing onto this earth are well-oiled and coming about. He is the one who is seeing it through. He is the one who is making it happen. His purposes, his plans in this world, they go on because he is faithful. They are dependent upon him. Now, let me assure you, this isn't a means to slack off and cheapen our efforts. Actually, it's meant to liberate us in our efforts. The burden of the success of God's kingdom isn't on your shoulders. It's on Jesus's. Therefore, the little things that we do, they matter. Therefore, when you're helping a friend change a tire, that's a kingdom moment. When you're helping a friend take in groceries, repair a shingled shed, help them with studying a Bible verse. All those little moments are kingdom moments that move the kingdom forward. We don't have to be concerned about doing some big, mighty thing for God. 
Because the dependent thing, the faithful thing, is knowing that God's kingdom is coming about, whether we like it or not. It's going to thrust itself upon this world, whether man wants it to or not. It's going to happen. God's kingdom is unstoppable. His plans and his purposes are unimpeachable. You know what? That's sort of the hope I get when I see empty church buildings. Empty church buildings give us this, uh, give me sort of a, a, a complex emotion. Because on one hand, I'm saddened. I'm saddened when I see a church building empty. Because there's no people visiting. There's no gospel filling its walls. But on the other hand, I think it speaks exactly to this point. That that church was faithful in its time. And God's work has continued even after its time. That God uses people in specific moments and specific times to carry on his work. And it will go on even if we do not. Even if we are taken from this life. God's work will go on. Because he is a faithful God who has ensured the victory of all things and the triumph of all righteousness not dependent upon us. That would be a bad plan. Because we are unrighteous, we are fickle, we are unfaithful. It's dependent upon him. Because he never changes. As we learned about in James in Sunday school this morning, with him there is no variableness, there is no shifting of shadows. He cannot change. His plans and his purposes, they move forward. Despite the flurry of events and confusion that go on around us, God's plans and purposes are moving forward. Yes, even now at this hour. He hasn't abated at all in his faithfulness to us. And that way I think these chapters read as one of the most impeccable resumes of faithfulness. It's just not ours. It's God's. This is God's faithfulness. Go all the way to chapter 21. Let me read you two, uh, three verses from the end of chapter 21. After all of this, look at how it culminates. And the Lord gave unto... Oh, excuse me. Joshua 21 verse 43. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers. And they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that he sware unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered them all, delivered all their enemies into their hand. And there failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. That's faithfulness on display. No word of God fell and did not come about. All of it was fulfilled. All of it came to pass. Every good thing was fulfilled. This is God's faithfulness on display. Every single moment of his people's life. He was faithful to them. And for them. Whether they heeded it or not. Which reminds me, I'll just read you this verse. It's one of my most favorite <laughs> verses in all of the scripture. It comes from Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. It says this, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. 
If we are faithless, that doesn't make God just as faithless with us. It makes him faithful all the more. Why? Because he does not change. He is always faithful, whether we are faithful or not. This is the liberating work of Christ for us, which liberates our work for God. Because God is faithful and the work of the kingdom is going to come about. We can trust in this pattern and promise of deliverance. Now and forever, years and years on end, God's work is going to continue. We aren't that important to the kingdom. <laughs> hate to burst your bubble. I'm not that important to the kingdom. <laughs> God forbid if something happens to me, this work of God is going to crumble. No, it's not. It's going to keep going because God is faithful. He's the true and better shepherd. He's the true and better king. He's the one on whom all of this is riding on. If God sees fit to pull me out of this life, the work of the gospel is still going to continue. The work of moving his truth forward is still going to go on. That's the message that we can have. The the freedom that we can have. Because that's the type of faithfulness that he has demonstrated. Yes, all the way back. In this time period with Joshua. And yes, even to this moment now in 2020. And yes, a thousand years later. This same God is always going to be this same amount of faithfulness. Demonstrating to it over and over again. So we may be in a time period that feels like something's going to happen. God is faithful. This, his work, his plan, his purposes, which we aren't always familiar with. They cannot be thwarted or impeded by anything that man does. His plans and purposes will come about. Because he is the faithful one. And he brings about every single word that he has given to us. As it says there in Joshua chapter 21. Just as he says that it would. A resume of faithfulness. Not ours. His. Let us pray.